Welcome back to hermeneutics. Anybody remember what we talked about last week? We got to good hermeneutics, right? We're talking about the principles for right hermeneutics this week. We're going to talk about the last two. All right, now here's the real, the real question. What were some of the principles we talked about? You don't have to get them in order. Just what were some of the principles we talked about? Anybody remember one? Using normal, natural language, yes. Context, yes. There was someone else who said something. Submit to the authority of the text. Single meaning, yes. There's only one meaning to the text. Any others? Those are, that's really good. We're dependent upon God. We talked about these five. Submit to the authority of the text. We're dependent upon God. We set aside our pre-understandings. We seek a single meaning for every text. And we understand the language naturally and in its own context. And so now we're going to go on to number six and number seven, and we'll do those today. The sixth principle for right hermeneutics. We recognize progressive revelation. We recognize progressive revelation. This is very important. And just as a reminder, remember, these principles are built off our theological foundation. Remember those four? The Bible is God's own self-revelation. In his revelation, he intended to reveal himself, his nature, his will, his works. He gave that revelation through men. In inspiration, anybody can tell me what inspiration means? Someone's God-inspired? God-breathed? God spoke through men. The words on the page are the words of the human author, but they are also the words of God himself. Every word, every phrase, every sentence, every paragraph is God's word. And because they're his word, his words, they take on his nature. That means they must be perfect. They must be without error. There cannot be any deception or mistakes in it. Because if God put mistakes and error in his word, then he would be the God of confusion and dishonesty, not the God of truth and order. And because God wanted to reveal himself, because it was God's intention to let you know who he was, he didn't obscure his revelation in uh, mystical, unintelligible language and symbols. Scriptures are perspicuous, perspicuity. They can be understood. God wrote them to be understood. And it was his desire to be understood that leads him to use progressive revelation. That is to say that God revealed his message over time, piece by piece. When you're teaching a child math, how many of you started your children off in calculus? Anybody? If you're going to teach your children science, are you going to start them off with advanced chemistry? No, you start with the basics. You start with simple, broad concepts. And over time, you build a foundation, and then you stack more information on top of it. Now, when you get to calculus, and you start learning calculus, does basic addition change? Does it change the way we do 1 plus 1? Does it change basic multiplication tables? All that stays the same. All of that is the foundation of what comes later. The same is true with Revelation. From Genesis to the book of Revelation, the Bible contains this overwhelming amount of information. That information wasn't dumped on mankind in a single moment. It was given over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And each author received a piece, part of the grand corpus of Revelation. 
And each piece built upon other pieces and was added to other pieces. Let me give you another example. If I just make this statement, I live in an apartment, is that a true statement? Yes. Does it tell you everything you need to know about the apartment I live in? Does it answer every question you might have? It's a very broad, very general statement. Now, if I said my apartment is located off I-10, does that contradict what I just said a minute ago? Does it give you more information on what, where I live? And then as I go along further, I can get more detailed about my apartment. My apartment has one bedroom, one bathroom. Still haven't answered all of your questions, have I? But I have given you truth, and I've given it to you piecemeal. One bit of information at a time. And oftentimes, the early revelation is very general, and it lacks some of the specific details that you may really want it to give. Let me give you an example. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They received prophecies about the Messiah. They had specific information about him, but they were lacking some details. What details were they lacking according to 1 Peter 1? Who? Yeah, they didn't know which person it was going to be. What else? When? What time? When is he going to show up? What else are they lacking? Kind of time. What are the circumstances of his arrival? What's the world going to be like when he comes? What are the circumstances when he shows up and how is he going to come into the world? They didn't receive all of the information at once. They received pieces of information and there were some things that they did not have. Another example, Hebrews 1, verse 1, very explicit statement. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Notice this little phrase, many portions. You might translate that as various parts. God spoke in many parts. Peter O'Brien says of this word that God spoke to the ancestors in a piecemeal or fragmentary fashion. Little bits of information. God gave parts of his revelation to each prophet. And he gave that revelation in many different ways. That is to say, some received the information through a dream. Some people, like Moses, spoke face-to-face -face with God. Other people had a vision. It came in different ways. But all of it was perfect divine revelation, and it was all received from God, but no prophet received all that God was going to say. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, just to show you that this isn't some made-up concept, says this, we affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Scriptures was progressive. We deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever corrects or contradicts. By the way, I think, I know MacArthur and I think R.C. Sproul were both involved in writing the statement in the 1970s. Notice, God's revelation was progressive, and later revelation does not deny or contradict earlier revelation. Why? Because it's all written by the same divine author. And that one divine author cannot lie. And so no matter when the revelation was given or what way it was given, it coincides and it always agrees with other revelation. Let me be a little bit more specific there. Revelation given in the Old Testament does not contradict the revelation in the New Testament. If it did, either God lied or God got his facts wrong. Which we know can't be true. Numbers 23, verse 10, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. 
Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not establish it? If God said it in the Old Testament, it's just as true as what he said in the New Testament. He doesn't get his facts wrong. And that also means that the New Testament cannot and does not change what the Old Testament said. The Old Testament doesn't need to be updated or revised. It's perfect just the way it is. Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Yahweh, your word stands firm in heaven. It's not up for revision. New Testament authors didn't change what the Old Testament meant or said. Psalm 119, verse 151, Near are you, O Yahweh, and all your commandments are truth. Of old I have known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Because if the New Testament changed the Old Testament, then what does that say about the author? He changed. He changed his mind. He updated his, he changed the plan. He updated his revelation. Something's different. Maybe he looked back on it and said, oh, I regret saying that. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. First Samuel 15, verse 29. Also, the eternal one of Israel will not lie or have regret, or he is not a man, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God does not have to change his revelation. He doesn't have to update it or revise it. And his revelation never contradicts itself. And if you struggle to understand parts of revelation, which you will, it says nothing about the text itself. The fact that we struggle to understand it doesn't mean there's a problem with the text. It means there's a problem with us. When we interpret the text of Scripture, we must come to the text with this very important principle of recognizing progressive revelation. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't give you this other verse. Luke 21, verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Progressive revelation is also called antecedent theology, or antecedent revelation, if you want to know how the theologians describe it. Now, this is important when you come to interpreting the Bible. Because we recognize that each author, each human author, wrote Scripture according to his understanding and the revelation he had at the time that he wrote it. Which means the information, the revelation Moses had when he wrote the Pentateuch is different than what Matthew had when he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And if we're going to interpret the text, we need to understand what that author understood and knew when he wrote it. Each author's text was informed and shaped by the revelation that came before. The author was operating under presuppositions or theology given to him in the revelation that he had. On the other side of the coin, he's also operating with, without the revelation that followed his own time period. Therefore, revelation given after the text was written cannot be used to establish what your text means, which means I can't go into the writings of Moses and use the New Testament to tell me what Moses meant. Moses didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the apostles, and he didn't get to hear Jesus preach. That's not what he used to write the text, and we can't read that into his text. Dr. Clausen says this, This principle takes into account the shared pool of convictions or presuppositions formed in the writer and his audience by God's previous acts of revelation. It takes into account the theological or revelatory context of the biblical writer and his audience. When Moses wrote the Pentateuch, he, had, he and his original readers had a set of beliefs based on revelation that they had already received. And Moses' writings reflect those presuppositions and that theology. 
but they do not reflect the presuppositions and understandings of later prophets, let's say New Testament apostles, and revelation that were received after Moses died. By recognizing that there's progressive revelation, you ensure that you're not reading into the text something that came after it was written. And you isolate down just to what that author intended. Dr. Clausen, one more. On the other hand, this principle prevents later texts from being read into earlier texts and overruling them with later revelation to which the writer and his audience did not have access. Biblical theology is developed over time through centuries of revelation. And this is especially important when you get into the New Testament and you find the New Testament writers using terms and concepts, and they don't give a lot of explanation on what they mean by it. They just assume that the reader understands the term or the concept. Take, for instance, um, the phrase, the kingdom, in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Doesn't explain what he means by the kingdom, does he? A little bit later on, he goes in and gives some parables that give specific slots of information about it, but he doesn't really tell you what he means. Why not? He assumes that you know because the Old Testament described what the kingdom is. Concepts, words, or even events in any given passage being studied should be understood according to what was re revealed about them in previous writings. We understand the concept of kingdom not by going to the New Testament and building a brand new theology of kingdom, but we go into the Old Testament where the Old Testament speaks about it and we develop our understanding from that because that's what the New Testament authors used when they wrote their books. Walter Kaiser, the exegete will use biblical theology whenever a concept, word, citation, or event in the passage being exegeted indicates that there were originally both an awareness of its relation to a preceding core of faith and an intention of making further contribution to or an elaboration on that preceding core. Very fancy way of saying, when the New Testament authors are building off an Old Testament concept, we go back to the Old Testament and we grab that concept from the Old Testament and we let the Old Testament define what it means because that's what the author is doing. He's defining what it means. Let me give you an example. This is a little bit more in-depth here. Take the concept of the day of the Lord. How many of you have heard that phrase, the day of the Lord? It only shows up in the New Testament four times. And when it does show up, it gives very little as far as details are concerned. Uh, let me show you. First Thessalonians 5, verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. How do they know that? This is the first time he mentioned it in his letter. Where do they get the information from? 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2. That you not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed, whether by a spirit or a word or a letter, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. How are we to understand what Paul means by the day of the Lord? Well, we don't sit in the New Testament and just kind of wander around the New Testament and trying to figure out Let's see if we can create our own theology of the day of the Lord. Because Paul here is assuming that his audience already knows what this term means. And he's assuming that because the Old Testament speaks about the day of the Lord constantly. The meaning was set out in the Old Testament by the prophets. That phrase, the day of the Lord, or something very similar to it, was used 19 different times in the Old Testament. And it was used in two different contexts. First, it was used to describe an immediate day of judgment. It wasn't always referring to eschatology. There were times where it was describing a, a day that was coming in the immediate future where God was going to judge the nation of Israel. Uh, take Joel 1, verse 15. Alas, for the day, 
For the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Here he's not talking about eschatology. He's not talking about end times. He's talking about a judgment of locusts that was going to come upon the nation of Israel. And it's described as the day of the Lord. Context here will tell you what kind of judgment it's referring to. Secondly, this phrase is used to describe a future time of judgment. Joel 2, same book, same author, he uses it in a different way. Joel 2, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And people will say, well, can't that be describing the judgment that's coming in the immediate future? Couldn't that be describing the locust judgment of Joel 1? I don't think so. Joel 2, verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it, to the years of many generations. This is a judgment that's coming that is unlike anything the world has ever seen. There have been other plagues, other locust plagues. There have been other judgments of God. None of them match this one. For Joel, the day of the Lord, here, is referring to God's day of judgment. One place is referring to a day of judgment in the immediate term, temporal judgment, and the other one is referring to a final future judgment. And that future judgment is also accompanied by mercy and compassion. Joel 2, verse 18, Then Yahweh will be zealous for his land and will spare his people. There is judgment and there is mercy and compassion on the day of the Lord. Joel 2, verse 23. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, that would be Israel, and be glad in Yahweh your God, for he has given you the early rain and righteousness, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the late rains as before. So much mercy that he tells them when this day comes, rejoice, because God will be merciful to you. And in Joel, this day of the Lord is also, this day speaks of compassion for the Gentiles. Joel 2, verse 31, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes, and it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, even among the survivors from Yahweh calls. Even the Gentiles will find mercy on the day of the Lord. Do you see how we're just building a theology of the day of the Lord? So when we get to Paul, and Paul says, day of the Lord, we already have an Old Testament understanding of what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament referred ultimately to a final judgment. A judgment that would come upon the entire world, and God would have mercy on his people. That's what Paul wants you to understand about the day of the Lord. When you go back into First and Second Thessalonians and he's talking about the day of the Lord, that's what he's referring to. A day when God would come and judge and bring judgment on unbelievers and mercy for his people. Dr. Clausen again. Speaking of Paul, by using his, this formal designation, Paul is pointing his audience to an already established usage. The term already has a meaning. Developed over centuries given progressively over time. And that does not change when you get to the New Testament. We establish the meaning for the phrase by the Old Testament. We don't bring a new meaning 
Any questions on progressive revelation so far? No, that's not a bad hermeneutic. That's looking more, I think, at significance and fulfillment and how the prophecies are fulfilled. Uh, this is just talking about how do we define these terms and how do we build that, how do we build a picture of what that, what that judgment's going to look like. Any other questions on that? All right, so we just saw we recognize progressive revelation. That's the sixth principle for hermeneutics. Uh, number seven, we confirm our conclusions. We confirm our conclusions. If we agree that the authors of Scripture, both human and divine, wrote in a way that they intended to be understood, and if every text has just one meaning, the authors wrote to be understood, and they wrote with only one meaning, and that meaning is conveyed to the reader through the text according to the normal laws of language and grammar, then we must be able to say, that we can come to an understanding of what the text actually means. We can arrive at an objective meaning of the text. But we're sinners, and our minds have been affected by sin. We, we looked at that last week. And so it's very possible that even if we go through this entire process of doing hermeneutics and working through the text, that we might come to a wrong conclusion. And so we have to have a way to confirm our conclusions. We have to have a way to validate whatever we say the text means. How do we prove we got it right? How can we be confident that we got it right? And there are three different methods, you might say, for confirming your conclusions. The first one is called the analogy of faith. And you guys, you've probably already heard this. Scripture interprets Scripture. We look at the rest of what Scripture says to determine whether or not we got it right in this passage, whatever the passage we're looking at. Uh, R.C. Sproul, in his book, Knowing Scripture, said, The primary rule of hermeneutics was called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is the rule that Scripture is to interpret Scripture. Sacred Scripture is its own interpreter. This means, quite simply, that no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. So if I'm studying a passage and I come to a conclusion on a passage that contradicts another part of Scripture, I've got my interpretation wrong. Let's look at a, an example of a faulty interpretation and see how this works. James 2, verse 24. I had mentioned this one last week, but we didn't talk about it. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Anyone know any groups that really like this verse? Go to text for the Roman Catholic Church. Now, when we look at this verse, we wouldn't say that this is talking about you're justified by faith plus works, would we? Because we look at this text and we, we examine the text not in isolation, but we look at its context. And if you go back to the beginning of this passage, James 2 verse 14, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Notice he didn't ask, can faith save him? He asked, can that faith save him? Can that faith that is only faith and nothing else, a faith that produces no good works, a faith that produces no change in a person's life, can that kind of faith save a man? Is it genuine faith? James here is not talking about how a person is made right before God or declared righteous before God. He's talking about what is the evidence of true faith? How do you know genuine faith? 
In James 2.24, when he says you are justified by works, he is using the term that Paul uses for justification. It's the same Greek word. Yet that word is also used to describe being vindicated, being proven. And the context there would demand that that's how you read it here. Our faith will be proven by our works. Now let me give you the opposite side of this argument. And then we'll apply our principle here of the analogy of faith. The Council of Trent, which is 1500s, right about, in their sixth session, they had a whole session on how a person is justified, on justification. And the council argued that justification before God is not on faith alone, but it's faith plus works. Here's how they work this out. When you're a baby and you get baptized, you are made righteous in their eyes. The guilt of sin is removed. And you are considered to be justified. But as you grow up and you commit a mortal sin, you lose the grace of justification and you have to be re-justified by doing works. Does that make sense? Not biblically. I know biblically doesn't make sense. Logically, does that make sense? Okay. Here's what they said. They, through the observance of the commandments of God and of the church, faith cooperating with good works increase in the justice, increased justification received through the grace of Christ, and are still more justified as it is written, you see how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. What verse did they quote? James 2.24. You sin, and the way to regain your justification is to go back and do more good works, and you can be justified again, and you can increase your good standing before God by faith and good works. And they use James 2.24 to prove it. The Council of Trent, same session, six, the, they put some canons at the end where they anathematize everybody who disagrees. Canon number 24, if anyone shall say that the justice received is not preserved and also increased in the sight of God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification received, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed and damned. They've taken this one verse and they've used it to build an entire theology of works righteousness. Is that interpretation true? Now, I think you can make a strong argument from James 2 that's, that's a bad interpretation. But I, we're going to apply the analogy of faith here to this. Take their interpretation of James 2 and compare it with just, let's just try two other passages and see if it holds water. Romans 3. Verse 28, for we, ta- we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Blatantly contradictory. If their interpretation of James 2 is correct, then Paul and James disagree. And by the way, there are some in the Protestant world that say that Paul and James disagree. I don't know how you get there when you have a doctrine of inspiration. Because James and Paul were both writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If they disagree with each other, then the Holy Spirit disagrees with himself. It's not possible. Galatians 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. That last statement's pretty clear, isn't it? 
no one will be justified by the works of the law. And in fact, when you go through the rest of Scripture and you look at everywhere where it talks about justification, it always says the same thing. You cannot be justified by doing the law. And there are a multitude of other verses that you can go and look at. They either say it's not by works or it just says it's by faith. All right, well, then that brings the question. When should I apply the analogy of faith? Should I apply the analogy of faith before we interpret the passage? I come to the passage, let's say it's James 2, and I use the rest of Scripture to limit the field of possibilities on what the text means. And I go through all the rest of Scripture, I figure out what that says, and I come to my passage, and that puts up the roadblocks and tells me what the text can and cannot mean. And then I just pick from the available options. Is that the way I should do it? Anybody see a problem with that? Good. Yeah, we're not supposed to come to the text with a pre-understanding, and that would be bringing a pre-understanding. What's another problem with that view? Right. How did I interpret the rest of the Bible? What if my understanding of those other passages is wrong? Well, if I bring that as my pre-understanding to this text, guess what I'm going to do? I'm not going to get this text right because I'm going to read this text with the lens of those other passages. What's the other problem with this? The other problem with this is now this new text can never correct my bad theology. I am forever stuck in my bad theology because I will forever use my bad theology to interpret every passage. And so every passage is going to confirm what I already believe. I'm now stuck. Instead, instead you need to take all that the Scriptures say on a subject. second option is you use the analogy of faith after you interpret the text. That is to say, you go through the entire interpretive process, you go through all the process of interpreting the passage, and you come to a conclusion on what the text means. And then once you've arrived at that conclusion, then you take your conclusion and you compare it to the rest of what Scripture says about that subject. This allows the text that you're studying to speak for itself. It allows you to be exposed to what this text says, and then it allows the meaning of that text to be validated or invalidated by the rest of Scripture. And you're also able to correct any previous misunderstandings that you had about theology or about Scripture. We're talking about confirming our conclusions. You can do that by using the analogy of faith. You can also do that by using the Catholicity principle. Not Catholic, like Roman Catholic. This is talking about taking your conclusions and comparing them to what the church historically has said about that particular text. Uh, Dr. Clausen again. The Catholicity principle asks, does my exegetical conclusion represent a novel interpretation never seen before in church history? Just a little tidbit here. If you come to a conclusion on the text no one has ever seen before, you're wrong. (laughs) If it's new, it's not true. But just ask the question, why would you come up with an interpretation that no one has ever seen before? Is it because you're just such an amazing Bible student? Or is it because God has given you eyes to see things which God, he has not permitted others to see? Or is it because others just were not as faithful in their interpretation of the text as you are? 
see, there's just no way to humbly come to a, a, a meaning on a text that no one has ever come to before. Novel interpretations, new interpretations are a misunderstanding of the teaching gift given by the Holy Spirit. You will hear people say, well, I don't use commentaries. I don't use books. I don't need other men. I have the Holy Spirit. God has given men throughout history the gift of teaching. And that gift specifically refers to their ability to teach the Bible. And God has uniquely equipped each one of those men to teach the Bible and to teach his word. And the Holy Spirit guides them, not infallibly, but he guides them to such an extent that he has used those teachers to feed, to nourish, and to grow his church. And once they taught their live audience, oftentimes they would go and write their teachings down in a book. And hopefully you have benefited from some of those, like Charles Spurgeon and John Calvin. They wrote for the benefit of future generations, that they could feed and nourish future generations of Christians and believers. That's why God has given them the teaching gift. And for someone to come up with a novel interpretation is to ignore history, the history of the church, and the long lines of faithful Bible teachers that God has put in this world. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but it's Dr. Robert Thomas. He says, these teachers teach through an oral ministry, but they also teach through a written ministry. A rich storehouse of spirit-given teaching based on the Bible is available in the writings of these teachers whom Christ has given to his church, and it should not be ignored. It should be used by Christians just as they use what they receive in the classroom. It should not be viewed as data that excludes what the Spirit teaches directly, but should be used alongside it as a supplement to it. Are they infallible teachers? No. Are they the ultimate determiner of what the text means? No. There's a long line of faithful men who have come and who have been given this gift of teaching. They're not infallible, but they're a wonderful check on our interpretation. And again, we don't apply this principle at the beginning of interpretation. I don't go to the text and say, well, what does John MacArthur say about this text? And then I'll figure out what it means. I go to the text and I study the text first. And then I go back and I check my conclusions with commentaries and faithful teachers. I had a professor in seminary, he said, um, make sure your commentaries are tools, not teachers. And what he meant by that is, you study the text first, and you come to an understanding of what the text means according to the text, and then you go check that with other people. But we shouldn't ignore other people. We shouldn't ignore other teachers and the faithful men throughout history. So that's the second way you can do it. You can confirm your conclusions with the Catholicity principle, going and checking what men throughout history have said on a passage. And by the way, this is a great opportunity for you to grow in your understanding of interpretation. Because when you go through and you study a passage for yourself and you come to certain conclusions, you'll know why you reach those conclusions, and then you go read a commentary, and he's, that commentary may come to a different conclusion. If it's a good commentary, he'll tell you how he reached that conclusion. And you'll be able to check not only your conclusions, but you'll be able to check the method that you use to reach it. And then you can begin to draw from other people and grow in your understanding of the text. 
Third way you can do this. The community of faith principle. This is very similar to the previous one. The Catholicity principle looks at how the passage has been interpreted throughout history, where this one looks at how the local body of believers interprets the passage. Many today think that hermeneutics can and should be applied by people who are islands onto themselves. You know, we've taken the whole American individualistic idea and brought it into the church, and actually, correction, uh, they've used that idea of, I'm an individual and I have rights, and that means I can be completely detached from a local body, and I can interpret the Bible to mean whatever I want, and it's just as valid as what anyone else says. And so they refuse the fellowship of the local body, they refuse to submit to a plurality of qualified elders, they refuse to have any accountability for their conclusions on the text of Scripture, they ignore the fact that they have areas in which they are ignorant, they just assume they know everything, they ignore the fact that they have a sinful mind that corrupts their understanding, and they presume that they are able to understand and to know everything about the text without any help without any guidance, without any help or assistance from other believers. Charles Spurgeon, some under the pretense of being taught of the Spirit of God, refuse to be instructed by books or by living men. This is no honoring of the Spirit of God. It is disrespect for him. For if he gives to some of his servants more light than to others, and it is clear he does, then they are bound to give that light to others and to use it for the good of the church. You don't have everything. I don't have everything. And hopefully when you come to a church, a good church, you walk in and say, wow, I need to learn some more. I need to grow in my understanding. Spurgeon again, it seems odd that certain men who talk so much of what the Holy Spirit reveals to themselves think so little of what he has revealed to others. The Spirit speaks to me and not to you. And I don't want to hear what you have to say, and I don't want to have to submit to anyone else's thoughts on this, and I don't want to have to hear anyone else's opinion about this. I have my Bible, and I'm going to come to my own conclusion, and I don't care what you say about it. Yeah, she was saying that there are some churches that do that. They say it's just what we think is right. And I think that happens when you get one of these guys that Spurgeon is talking about, and he finally leaves his house, and he goes, and he plants his own church because he doesn't want to submit to anyone else, and then they just come up with whatever they want. And then they tell everyone else, you guys are all wrong. We've got this right. No, the community of faith is going to refer directly to your church. The uh, Right. But again, that's where the person who avoids his local church and he stays home and says, I don't need a church, that's where you get the cult from. He becomes the cult because he's the guy who's going to leave his house and say, well, I've got all this figured out on my own, Joseph Smith, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to plant my own church and this is what we're going to teach. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, sir. And oftentimes a bad church is no church at all because they, they, have, they don't have qualified elders. They don't have anyone teaching the Bible. Um, turn on the television, you'll see a whole bunch of guys who don't teach the Bible. And they give a whole lot of feel-good messages, but they just deceive people day in and day out. So yes, this would assume that you have a you went out and found a good church. Dr. Clausen again. 
This principle counters the right to private judgment notion asserted by many readers of Scripture who are only loosely accountable to local churches and mature pastors. This right to private judgment spirit manifests itself not only in untrained readers, but also among highly educated scholars who have no accountability to local churches and defend their unique interpretations of Scripture as part of their right to academic freedom. If you want to see this, just get on Facebook. Just go on Facebook in some of these theology groups, and you'll hear people saying all sorts of weird things. And then you ask them one question to stump them. Where do you go to church? Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's, that's true for a lot of people. They end up in churches that are very loose in their theology, and they, they play fast and loose with the text. Um, I guess that's... Again, I think it goes back to the, you need to have a good church. Right, right. So you take these three principles and you use them together. So take the, yeah, take one, two, three, these last three, and you use them together. You have a local church that's teaching kingdom. Back up for a second and say, has anyone in the history of the church taught that? Go back to all the faithful men throughout the church. Has anyone taught that? And then take it real simple. Is that what the Bible said? Just the plain reading of the text. Is that what the Bible says? And now you have a real easy way to judge the people that are teaching and determine whether or not you should listen to them. All right, quick review here. Principles for right hermeneutics. We submit to the authority of the text. We are dependent upon God. We set aside our pre-understanding. We seek a single meaning for every text. We understand the language naturally and in context. We recognize progressive revelation. We confirm our conclusions. Those are the principles for right hermeneutics. Now, we've considered all these briefly, but if you take all these principles and you lump them together and you give them a name, anybody know what this method is called? This method of interpretation? There you go. The grammatico-historical hermeneutic. There have been some who have given some definitions on it. I want to give you a definition. Uh, Milton Terry says this is um, speaks says of this hermeneutic. Its fundamental principle is to gather from the scriptures themselves the precise meaning which the writers intended to convey. It applies to the sacred books the same principles, the same grammatical process, and exercise of common sense and reason which we apply to other books doesn't view the Bible as some mystical book where we just, everything becomes allegory. It seeks that single meaning. Do you guys hear the principles we just discussed in that definition? Milton Terry again. The grammatico-historical exegete furnished with suitable qualifications, intellectual, educational, and moral, will accept the claims of the Bible without prejudice or adverse prepossession, and with no ambition to prove them true or false, will investigate the language and import of each book with fearless independence. He doesn't come to the text with an idea of, I'm going to refute the text. He doesn't come and say, well, I'm going to prove this text is not true. He doesn't come to the text with an idea that the text isn't true, and he's supposed to prove it correct. He focuses on the language of the text. Uh, Milton Terrigan. He will master the language of the writer, the particular dialect which he, is, he used, 
and his particular style and manner of expression. He will inquire into the circumstances under which he wrote, the manners and customs of his age, and the purpose or object which he had in view. Note the emphasis here on the language of the author. Language and grammar are the starting point for interpretation. And then once you understand the language and the grammar, then you move on to the historical context, the circumstances of the author's time, the events surrounding the writing, and the events surrounding what's described in the text. And all of that is designed to help you understand the purpose and the intent of the author when he wrote. Dr. Clausen again. As its name suggests, the grammatico-historical method of interpretation studies the principles of language and the facts of history in order to determine the meaning of the text as intended by the author. So, we have two sides of this. There's the grammar and there's the history. What are some of the things that we look for in our grammatical study? We're going to be flushing these out in the weeks to come. But to give you an idea, what are the elements of grammatical study? The first one is literary context. We start in the immediate verses that we're studying, the verses that come before and the verses that come after our passage, whatever passage we're studying. And then from there, we move outward, and we work our way out to other chapters and then to other books. But we always begin in the immediate context. I'm not going to try to understand Hebrews 6 by running over to Joshua 5 unless I've already examined the immediate context and I have evidence for going there. We're also going to look at the literary type. What is the genre of the text that you're studying? Is it poetry? Is it a narrative? Is it didactic? Is it teaching, like an epistle? Because that's going to determine how I apply some of these principles. We're also going to do a lexical study. We've, we've talked about this quite a bit. If every word is inspired, then every word needs to be correctly understood. Words have meanings. A hat is not a shoe. A car is not a bicycle. And when the author writes, he writes with those specific definitions in mind. And those definitions are what he uses to convey the idea that he wants to express. And the final element of this is the syntactical study. Syntax refers to how words relate to one another. If I just take the word hat and say it by itself, it doesn't tell you a lot. I have to use other words in relation to it to express an idea. And so we're going to study how the words are related to one another. Words also have semantic range. Anybody know what semantic range is? There you go. And so by studying syntax, every word has a range of meaning. Syntax and how it relates to the other words tells me which meaning I'm supposed to apply. I don't just get to randomly pick which one I want to use. If you've ever used Strong's Concordance or Strong's Dictionary, you'll see a list of meanings. We pick which one based off the immediate context and the syntax of the sentence. Uh, Dr. Clausen, the grammatico-historical method therefore places great emphasis on carefully analyzing the structure of each sentence, clause, and phrase in the text, recognizing that this structure contributes to the understanding of the author's intent. If I want to understand what the author said, I need to understand the grammar that he used. These are the elements of the grammatical study. The historical study, we're running out of time here, real quick. Historical study asks certain questions, things like who is the author, when did he write, where was he when he wrote, who did he write to? Why did he write the book? 
It examines the culture, the history, the time period, the geography that surrounds that author and the events he's describing. And again, we'll be looking at this process in detail. There's an important thing I need to note here. There is another hermeneutic that sounds very similar to this one. We're talking about the grammatico-historical hermeneutic. There is another one that you'll read and you'll hear about. The historical critical grammatical method. Sounds similar, doesn't it? Notice the word critical. Very important. This hermeneutic doesn't submit to the authority of the text. It's actually seeking to contradict and disprove the text. Uh, Craig Craig Bloomberg, I'll get it right. In source form and redaction criticism, which is this hermeneutic, we are no longer just accumulating data or utilizing methods that best enable us to interpret a biblical text. Instead, we are employing approaches to the text that allow us to adjudicate its origin, the nature of its transmission, and the probability of its historical trustworthiness and the like. When you come to the text of Scripture, is that what you're looking for? They come to the text with a critical attitude, and they seek to find fault in the text. And they reject interpreting the text according to its natural sense or at face value. Here's what he says. What we are calling the historical critical, historical critical grammatical method must have this critical dimension to it. That is, a dimension that is both analytical and evaluative, based on common ground shared with the skeptic. If our faith cannot withstand historical inquiry, it does not merit retention. If it does, then we must subsequently subject ourselves to Scripture. When he says historical inquiry, he is not talking about going back and studying history. What he is talking about are the principles of higher criticism that essentially say, if it's not happening today, it didn't happen back then. So if there's no miracles happening today, no miracles happened back then. And so when I go in the Bible and I read a passage that talks about a miracle, I have to assume that's either myth, legend, or he just made it up. And it's not historically accurate. And they've used this method to cut vast chunks of the Bible out. It's not the same method. Just wanted to give you that warning. We are out of time. I'm actually over time. It's 10.02. Let me pray for us. We'll be done. If you have other questions, feel free to come and see me afterwards. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this time that we have to study hermeneutics. We do ask that you would help us to be better interpreters of the text, that we would apply these principles in our own uh, personal life, and that uh, you would be with us over the weeks to come as we learn more about these principles. Please help us in our worship this morning, that you would be uh, praised and glorified. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.